0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. My name is Emil Shore, and today I am joined by my lovely co-host, Michael Albom, Tom Schneider. And today we're gonna to be talking about how you can use trapped equity to actually help you scale your portfolio. So let's dive into this one.
1: Hey guys, before we get into it, I want to give you a heads up on a promotion that we're running right now. So with Roofstock Academy, we have all these benefits, coaching, on-demand lectures, the tools, SFR playbook, on and on. But the Roofstock marketplace credits just got that much sweeter. So initially it was a $750 credit when you buy. Now it's a $2,500 credit. So you buy Roofstock Academy and for your next five transactions with no time limit, you're going to get $500 back at the close of your transaction.
2: That's right, Tom. Thanks so much for sharing. And for all of our listeners, we're actually giving out a $100 off coupon for an enrollment into the Roofstock Academy. So go ahead and use July 4 at checkout. And that's J-U-L-Y and the number 4 at checkout for $100 off a Roofstock Academy enrollment. And that coupon code is good through July 4th of 2020.
1: Take advantage of today. Happy
2: investing.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Tom. All right, guys, so we're going to be talking about how to tap into trapped equity to help you scale your portfolio. Before we get into the different ways, why do you guys even think this is an important
1: topic for investors to know about? This is gasoline to growing your portfolio. You know, buying a rental property is expensive, right? You know, it's not as expensive as buying an apartment complex. But once you start appreciating, having these properties appreciate and building equity, to being able to flip that appreciation... Into new rentals, honestly, like that's really like a catalyst for growing your portfolio so much faster than needing to, you know, come up with all the new cash all at once.
2: Totally, totally agree, Tom. Just to echo and piggyback off that, if you're taking a hundred dollar a month cash flow just for sake of discussion from a property, that's twelve hundred bucks a year. That's several years of saving that cash flow before you're ready for your next down payment. So, being able to tap into the appreciation side of things, which Tends to grow a lot faster uh, in appreciating markets than the cash flow does, can be a really great way to just leverage into additional rentals, just like Tom said. So, hopefully, I, I added some value there and didn't just say the same things in different words, but I totally agree.
0: It's funny because we're all, I think, in the same boat of we're all cash flow investors and we don't want to bank on appreciation. But when it does happen, there's all these benefits you can take advantage of to help you grow, right? Like most people probably think, Oh man, I have to keep saving from my W-2 or whatever you're doing to save up for properties. But there's actually a lot of different ways you can come up with the funds to keep acquiring new rental properties. Absolutely. Yeah, I can come from a number of different buckets.
1: Yep. Something that's, I think, similar to us three is we're we're not necessarily need to use the returns we're making on our investment properties right now, where I think we both think of it of the cash flow reinvest that dividends into new properties as well as the appreciation reinvest that appreciation in new properties and today's episode is just about that latter um, return and how to actually actualize that to investing in new properties with the appreciation
0: yep all right so now let's get into the specifics of how you can actually tap into that trapped equity and we're going to be highlighting four different strategies you can use First one being HELOC or home equity line of credit. Second one is a cash out refinance. Third is a 1031 exchange. And the last one is selling a property and using those funds to buy a new property.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Emil. So a HELOC, like you said, is a home equity line of credit. And it's something that I'm super excited about. It's something I've used a lot. It's a very, very powerful tool in the real estate arena. So basically what it is, is it's a line of credit. Think of it like a credit card that gets established On the equity in your home. So if you've got a primary mortgage, call it $100,000, and you've got $100,000 of equity in the property, a lender might give you 80% or 70% of the equity in a line of credit, which means they might give you a $70,000 or an $80,000 line of credit. And what it is, it's basically, just like I said, a credit card. And so you actually get a checkbook in the mail. And if you need access to that $70,000, you can write yourself a check, And you'll have $70,000 as soon as that check clears your bank. So this can be really great. That can be used as a down payment. That can be used to go buy a new car. That can be used for home improvements. I definitely wouldn't recommend the car thing because that's uh, a depreciating asset. It doesn't give you any kind of return on your money. But it's just a really, really, really flexible way to have access to quick cash. And the really nice thing about a HELOC is that you're only paying on the balance if it's outstanding, So let's say I set up this HELOC for $70,000. Day one, I don't use any. I just have the line sitting there. There's a closing cost associated with setting that line up, but it's usually pretty minimal. But so now I have access to that $70,000 and I can use it in any increment that I'd like. So let's say next week I want to buy a property and $20,000 is my down payment. I'll write myself a check for 20 grand, close on that new property. Now I'm off to the races. And now let's say a month from now, I get a bonus for $20,000 at my job. And I decide that I want to pay back that line of credit. I can make a $20,000 payment back to the line of credit. And now my outstanding balance is zero, which means I have no more monthly payments on that line of credit. The other nice thing about HELOCs is that they're typically interest only payments. So on that $20,000 example, I just gave that I had outstanding, I'd be making interest only payments which as we all know are gonna be significantly smaller than a fully amortized principal and interest payment. Some important things to note about HELOCs and their interest only payments, typically they are gonna be variable interest rates, which means they're gonna fluctuate from month to month. So if I have a 5% interest rate this month, I might be at five and a half or six or 7% next month. So we just need to be aware of that. But again, if we look at the math and just go back to our $20,000 example, the difference between a 5% interest rate and a 7% interest rate in terms of interest only payments on a monthly basis is pretty negligible. So, I, you know, when I first started using a HELOC and I'll get into it at the end, I thought, wow, the interest rate is 6%, that's crazy. I can go borrow money at 4%. Why would anyone use this this HELOC thing at 6%? But again, as it comes back to the interest only payment, it's a so much it's often a much more affordable and digestible payment amount to be allowing you to do things with that money that you might not ordinarily be able to do. So that was a super long-winded answer,
1: I know. (laughs) Tom, thoughts, feedbacks, opinion, additions? Love a HELOC. It's like basically a bazooka in your back pocket. Like if you need to like a bunch of cash real quick, like let's say a great deal comes up and your like cash of like actual, you know, liquid position is low. If you have an open HELOC, you can quickly tap into that and use it like for opportunistically, the rates that are available now are pretty incredible. I have one through right now through third federal. Yep, that's the name of it. And it is like hovering like mid two per two point somewhere in the middle. Holy smokes. I'm looking at my app right now. And it's unreal. And it's, you know, I jumped into it without with knowing a little bit about it, but kind of just guinea pig my way through and setting the line of credit up on my personal residence, and it's as wonderful as it sounds of just having this you know huge cash. I'm using the capital right now doing some improvements to the house that I live at. But what's what's great is there is no HELOC police. You can use the funds to on whatever you want to use it on. You can use it for buying rental property. You can use it for buying a car, as Michael said, I think you said it was a good investment to get a car. Anyways, I don't remember. One of exactly the best Lamborghini. Yeah. Is the best. <laughs> yeah. But um, he really powerful way to dip into your appreciation that you have. Something that I'm thinking about on the risk side is I don't, who knows what's going to happen with rates. I think into 2021, it could potentially go either way, but I don't want to leave myself on the hook for if there is a spike up, just because like Michael said, they are variable rates. I don't want to leave too big of a balance that I can't get out of, but it's a really great resource to have if you're able to set one up.
2: Such a great point talking about risk, Tom. One thing that's really important to note is that a HELOC is actually a second position mortgage. And so if you've got an outstanding balance that you don't pay on, your house or the property that the HELOC is established on could be foreclosed on via that HELOC, even if your primary mortgage or your first mortgage is up to date. So it's got to be treated with respect. It's it's still a mortgage. It has all the ramifications of, of a mortgage. So just be aware of that. But they are such, such a flexible tool.
0: Nice job, guys. You guys covered this one well. I have a couple questions for you as someone who's never done a HELOC, used the HELOC. Michael, you mentioned there's some closing costs. How do those compare to a cash out refinance or just you know, when you're regular, when you're getting financing those closing costs, how do they compare to that? Super, super minimal. I think I set up my line for like 500 bucks. It was
2: the oh, cost wow. of the appraisal and then like some miscellaneous minor fees.
1: It was super, super cheap. That's right. And on the appraisal, they didn't even send someone out to appraise the property. With desktop mine, appraisal. Did, someone did a desktop appraisal. I think they may have even waived that fee on the one the one that I did. But yeah, it's marginal costs.
0: Okay. I was going to ask you guys about appraisals as well.
1: How do they do that? Do they send somebody out? Do they do desktop? So depending on the size as of as the well.
2: property, they, they might send somebody out. But yeah, for mine, it was just on a single family home.
1: Got it. Another piece about HELOCs is, as Michael said, you know, it's a delta between the value of the home and the your first mortgage. Different companies that issue HELOCs may have a different percentage that they go up to, to the value. So the one that I'm in right now, it's the balance of my mortgage, uh, excuse me, 80% of the value of my home that the appraiser comes up with minus the balance of my mortgage. So the point that I'm making is for this particular lender, it's 80%. But I've seen HELOC companies, I believe the San Francisco Fireman's Credit Union or something, they go up to 90%. Don't quote me on that. But there are some HELOCs that go up to 90% of the value of the home, which you know, if you're trying to build a a big arsenal of having HELOC funds going up to 90% of the value is pretty, pretty incredible. But this was a while ago when I had looked at this. So I'm not sure if it's still available. But the point is, it's not a one size fits all just like mortgages are not one size fits all.
0: Nice. Great job, guys. Well covered. All right. So any anything else to add before we move on to cash out refinance?
1: Might as well do it. Get a HELOC.
0: Yeah, I I was just gonna say one last point is it's one of those things that
2: there's very little consequence to doing it and not using it. So I would so much rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And so Mm -hmm. for the $500 expense, I mean, these typically have a five to 10 year draw period. So they'll reevaluate in five or 10 years if they still want to grant you this line. If you don't use it for five years, okay, not a big deal. It costs you 500 bucks. But if you do use it, you are going to be so, so, so thankful. I promise you that you establish your future self will thank your, your past self for having set this up uh, on, on a property,
1: especially when values seem to be quite high at this moment in time, uh, kind of throughout the markets. I'll come in with one last question. Michael, do you have it on your rental property? Because I know a lot of lenders don't like doing HELOCs on rental properties. Right. Um, like I have it on my personal house. What, I'd love for you to, to riff on that real quick. On-
2: yeah, I've got it on a rental property that I own free and clear. So it was much easier to do because most lenders don't like to come in on a second position lien. Uh, so if you have a free and clear property, you have a primary with some equity in it, those can both be really great candidates for. Although I was talking with a student within the academy and they were saying that they found a HELOC provider that would come in in second position behind a mortgage company on an investment property. Hmm. So those, you know, everything exists under the sun. So you just got to go out and find it.
0: I don't know if you guys answered this or mentioned it, What's the period on a HELOC usually? When is that payment due? Is it five years, 10 years down the road? So typically it's, it's between five and 10 years, depending on what the HELOC stipulates.
2: But it's again, it's that interest only payment. And so if you're paying it back slowly over 10 years, and then you still have a balance, usually it'll just convert to a standard mortgage at that point, whatever interest rate is. And, and that'll all be stipulated by the lender specifically.
0: Got it. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. <clears throat> All right. Let's move on to the cash out refinance now. So basically a cash out refinance replaces your current home loan with a new mortgage that's higher than your outstanding loan balance. And what you're doing is that difference, you're pulling that back out as cash. And what's awesome about this, just like the HELOC, is that this is money you're getting and it's not taxed. Your, your home appreciates. You're redoing the loan and taking out that difference, and it's untaxed, which is really, really nice as an investor. Can you give What's us some like
2: math, some, some number breakdowns Emil about what that might look like for an investor?
0: Yeah, so let's say you let's make it simple. You purchase a property at hundred thousand dollars and you put 20 percent down. so you have an outstanding loan of 80,000. Your home appreciates to $150,000. So your equity has gone up 50K. So now you basically redo the loan at an 80%. Some lenders only go up to 75% loan to value. So you're making, what is that? What is that difference? 50, 50K 50 times 75%. Michael's doing the math. 112. Okay. So your original loan was for 80 and now your new loan is for 112 so the difference is $32,000. So minus some closing costs, let's call it $3,000, you're able to pull out around $29,000 in your cash out refinance. And now your new mortgage is for $112,000 instead of that original $80,000. So some of the things to be conscious of here, you might, let's say you your home appreciates like the example we just gave, and before you had a cash flowing property, you may you want to be careful to not, Over leverage yourself. So now you have a property that's not cash flowing. So maybe you were making $100, $150 of cash flow a month before with very conservative estimates. Now your new loan, you're basically breaking even each month or maybe even paying into the property. So that's when I think of some of the cons with a cash out refinance. I think some people may over leverage themselves to get that extra cash, create, turn a cash flowing property into one that's negative cash flowing. An alligator. An alligator, as our friend Michael Zuber likes to call it.
2: So I've, I've got an opinion on this. And so I, I always say, especially within the academy with a lot of people I coach and consult with, that we have to look at cash out refis as really a two-step process. Step one is getting the cash. And step two is what are you doing with that cash? Because if we can go then buy a second property that will yield us $250 in cash flow a month, as opposed to our just single at $150, as long as our cumulative sum is greater than its parts, I think that's a good move. Even if I have to have a negative cash flowing property in order to obtain a better one, I'm willing to do that. Tom, what do you think?
1: Whose side are you on? It really depends on what your situation is. If you are not needing the cash flow now, you know, scale. I would advise if you're build your portfolio. There's a lot of value in that as long as you're cognizant of your LTV as a whole, because you know, with doing a cash out refi, your loan to value is going to go up. So being conservative with that. But if you have the opportunity to scale your portfolio and you don't need the cash flow now, I think you're going to have two lines in the pond with multiple properties of doing that cash out refi and buying another unit with that would be what I would recommend.
2: Did that answer the question? (laughs) Yeah, totally. You're on Team Michael. That's awesome. Team Michael.
1: (laughs) Team Michael.
0: Team Michael for the
1: win. You
0: you guys are being silly. (laughs) Don't have negative cash flow on properties. Come on. Rule number one.
2: But if your cumulative cash flow is now greater than your single positive cash flow, does that carry any water for you?
0: So, okay. In our example, what do we pull out? Like 30K. You'd have to use that 30K as a new down payment. Correct let's say your your old property was cash flowing a hundred bucks and now it's at zero, yep, so your thirty k would have to go find a new property that's going to cash flow at i mean yeah at least a hundred bucks hundred fifty to make it worth it I would argue that it would need yeah it would need to need to cash flow significantly more
2: than what you were previously making because you yeah. could have done nothing and ended up with the same cash flow so it need
0: in my opinion should cash flow at least two hundred yeah. I mean, it sounds good on paper. Is that possible? Can you take that and go steamroll it into more cash flow? Watch me. Challenge accepted.
1: <laughs> Challenge accepted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, of course. I think the numbers have to work. And we're, we're just using examples, numbers for the sake of discussion to illustrate a point. But I guess the point that, that I would take is that if I'm comfortable, and again, like Tom said, it's a very personal decision. and You've got to evaluate everyone at their own specific point in life and what their what their properties look like and what their business looks like but I'm comfortable killing the cash flow on property A to have a increased cash flow on property B that is cumulatively greater than just A alone
0: yeah you're more of a risk taker than me I'm a, I'm a little more conservative but to each their own danger zone <laughs> alright cool anything else on cash out refinance we should cover I, when do you guys think the cash-out refinance is better than the HELOC and vice
1: versa. Well, the nice thing about the cash-out refinance is if rates, as they are now, are at a very low number, when you do a cash-out refinance, you're going to lock that rate in for 30 years or, or whatever the terms are. Versus a HELOC, you know, you're still on the roller coaster on where rates are going. So for me right now, just basically cash-out refi, the majority of my portfolio to tap into these super low rates that we have. So thinking long-term, looking at the rate.
2: I totally agree. I think it all comes back down to what your plan or what the individual's plan is for that cash. If they know that they're going to be buying something in the next three to six months, you know, cash out refi could be a great way to go. If they don't know what they're going to do with the cash, but they know that they want cash, HELOC can be a great way to go because you're not paying on that cash to just sit in your bank account like you are with a a cash out refi. So, and there's nothing to say that you can't do a hybrid approach. Take a little bit of cash out and also set up a HELOC for that remaining equity balance. That can be a really, really great way to go and a really powerful tool. Something else to just keep in mind is that your rate is gonna change from your original mortgage when you do a cash out refi. So you're basically wiping that first mortgage clean and getting a brand new, totally new mortgage. So whatever the rates and terms are of that new one, that's what you've gotta come to terms with. And then the last thing to think about is, I've heard this said from a number of different people, is that if you're towards the end of your mortgage, when you go to a refinance, that resets the clock back to year one on a 30 year payback for a single family home conventional mortgage. So if you're at the end of your mortgage cycle, you're paying the significant balance towards the principal. You are just gobbling away at that principal balance, which is really, really nice. Versus if you're resetting the clock, now we're paying the vast majority of that payment is going to the interest. So the balance is going to be decreasing at a slower rate than if we're towards the end of, our, of the life of our mortgage. So again, just something to consider, to keep in mind, to be cognizant of as you're looking at considering doing a, a cash out refi.
1: Great point. Hybrid. It's not a one size fits all. You can you can use both. Have both guns and missiles. <laughs> <laughs> in that example, I would say that uh, the heloc would be the gun, and the the, the ca- cash out refi would be the missile. Like the kind of a, a bigger, you know, locked in.
2: I thought the heloc is the bazooka, man. Now you're changing it up. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, feeling very <laughs> destructive today, Tom. Someone
0: <laughs> played Command and Conquer as a, as a kid. <laughs> Too much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you guys are making my job easy. Like, I don't have anything to add on top of, like, your final notes. Cool. Let's let's move on to the next one, 1031 Exchange. Tom, you want to take the lead on this one?
1: Yeah. So we'll hit this one pretty quickly. We had an episode earlier, episode, I think, four or five, I'm not, somewhere in there. Anyway, so a 1031 Exchange is deferral. So it is selling a property not paying any taxes on the proceeds from that sale, and rolling all of those proceeds into buying a new property. So with the 1031, there are some rules that you need to adhere to. And a high-level example of those rules is you need to identify properties within a specific period. There is rules around the value that you're selling to what you can buy. And we recommend talking to a 1031 professional company to understand those rules. But the big shtick for a 1031 exchange is you're selling your property, you're making a bunch of money, and you're not paying any taxes on those. You're deferring those. Now, eventually, when you do sell and, and do not use the proceeds to buy another property, which we'll talk about.
2: I think what you're getting at, Tom, is that you can continue rolling that deferment via 1031, exchanging every property that you then buy and then subsequently sell. Exactly. So if you sell property A via 1031 exchange to buy property B, When you're ready to sell property B, 1031 exchange that into property C and so on and so forth, such that, so you're deferring, deferring, deferring your capital gains tax until the point at which you might not be around anymore. And then whoever you leave that building to gets a step up in basis. And that basically wipes away the capital gains tax that they would have to pay. So echoing what you said, go talk to a 1031 professional before attempting this, go listen to the episode that we did on 1031 exchanges. It's really, really informative. But it's a really, really great way to sell properties and not have to worry about paying the capital gains tax.
0: Yeah. And I I looked it up. It was episode 15 was a 1031 episode we did.
1: Awesome Reasons that you would want to do a 1031 is perhaps you're moving your portfolio, moving geographies. Perhaps you're changing to more of an appreciation asset, to more of a cash flowing asset. Perhaps you want to take one property and use the proceeds to buy multiple properties or the other way around. There's so many different use cases for doing a 1031 exchange and the mechanics of it, of deferring the tax payment are available for all of them. Yeah. So what would be a con? Why wouldn't you want to do a 1031? You wouldn't want to do a 1031. I mean, you're, you're selling the property. So if it's an asset that you like, like, you know, you, you are, are changing assets, you know, what other ones cons are?
0: Oh, the, the timeline you have, right? So sometimes i think it's like a 45 day or 60 day timeline to identify the next property that you're gonna 1031 into and so sometimes i think you could feel like it's forcing your hand into maybe a so-so deal versus something where you wait you know maybe you pay the capital gains on it but you're finding a better property because you're, you're not restricted to this short time window
1: mm-hmm. the other con I would put is versus those initial two with the HELOC and the cash out refinance, you have a very good idea on how much money you're going to have available from that maneuver. But with a 1031 exchange, you're selling the property, so there are just a lot more variables on what you're going to get when you pour, when you sell the property versus like knowing what the what the rates are and and whatnot with a with a HELOC and a cash out refi.
2: Yeah. And one additional point to add on top of that, Tom, I always seem to be picking, piggybacking off you because you've got such great points. You, is your back tired yet from carrying me? <laughs>
1: uh, Jan, I'll call you Jan Sport. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> is, you know, in the first two we talked about, we're tapping into the equity and now having usable cash in addition to still controlling the asset. When we go to sell, as with the 1031 and, and selling a property straight up, as we're going to talk on in a minute, we now no longer own the asset. And in the example of a 1031, we don't have the cash because we need to use all of that cash to buy a new property. Now, of course, if we don't use all the cash, that's called boot, and that can be taxed at capital gains rate, whatever. But if the idea is to pay as little capital gains possible, we want to be using all of that gain into a new property, there's going to be nothing left over for us in usable cash.
0: Let's talk about boot a little bit. You mentioned it briefly. Michael, do you know that I think it's the boot is... Let's say you sold your property at two hundred thousand. You go and find another property for a hundred fifty k. You still have fifty thousand dollars that isn't used in the ten thirty one exchange. And so, if you don't use that within your ten thirty one timeline, you're still taxed on that fifty thousand dollars capital gains or whatever. Exactly, whatever capital that delta gain is. Yep. Yeah,
2: whatever is not used up is left over, and that's called boot.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: and that's you another can- good. Con example, you know, it, you're, you're fitting a little bit more of a piece of a puzzle and you can't fit it just right, you're going to have some taxes. Sorry, Emil, go ahead. All right. Michael, do you want to close us out on selling a property straight up without a 1031 exchange? Yeah. So,
2: last and final way to tap into the trapped equity is just sell a property straight up. So, instead of doing a HELOC or a cash out refire 1031, just sell the property. If you bought it for 100, now you can sell it for 120, sell it for 120, you'll walk away with 20K and you'll have to pay. Uncle Sam, the capital gains on that. And depending on what your personal financial situation looks like, that's going to dictate what that gain might look like. So if we call it a cool and easy 25%, you'll walk away with 15 grand in your pocket. Not a bad payday at the end of the day. So I think a lot of people get hung up in, oh, I've got to do 1031s or I've got to do cash every fire. I've got to do a HELOC. If you just need the cash quick and you just want to be done with the property for whatever reason, you just want the cash. You don't want to have to worry about it. Just sell the property. It can be a really, really great option. And again, depending on your personal financial situation, that's going to dictate how much tax you may or may not have to pay on that gain. So Emil, do you have any pros, cons to to this type of thing?
0: Yeah, so I have a, a personal example of this recently. So I bought a property about two years ago and recently decided to sell it. Ended up selling it for the same price I bought it for. For me, I... So I didn't have to worry about a 1031. I didn't have any capital gains to worry about. I basically ended up a little bit below break even. I lost $1,200 if you factor in cash flow and selling and all that stuff. But for me, I wanted I wanted this down payment back. Right, I put 25% down on this property. I wanted my down payment back to be able to go use it on something better. That, that property was okay, cash flowing property, but uh, I'm pursuing a little bit different of a strategy right now. And there's, again, there's all these different ways you can Tap into money. This this property hadn't appreciated, so cash out refi, HELOC weren't really options for me. But I wanted to get a nice chunk of cash right now, and so I just decided to sell this property at basically no gain. So this is something I used recently. So that's a
2: a massive pro,
1: right? Exactly. I like that example because you know you got you you dipped your toe, and you know maybe it wasn't like the property you wanted but i think that the takeaway that i hear from it is you know when you do these maneuvers nothing is locked in stone and you know these are all some excellent tools that you have in your back pocket when you are investing in real estate and there is some appreciation some extra equity but ultimately you know doing you have a lot more options within this type of investment and to to have these options available you you got to get in you know yeah
2: absolutely right. And Emil, something too that I don't think we touched on yet is is the tax advantages that you've had for the last two years as a result of owning that property. So if we looked at the total, total, total return factoring in loan, pay down, depreciation, tax benefits, all this kind of thing, my guess is you're you're gonna end you're still gonna end up in net positive. So even though you didn't see any true dollars gained in your pocket, if we turn the clock back and look two years in reverse, you probably did better on this than you would have had otherwise.
0: Right. And and to echo Tom's point. It's a learning experience. I didn't lose that much, right? Like obviously there's an opportunity cost of that money making money over the last 2 years versus losing, but I think that's part of it, right? I think a lot of real estate investors only talk about the big wins and sometimes it's not always rosy. There are some things that happen that weren't isn't what you expected, but the important thing is you learn something from each each maneuver, each step.
2: Nicely said. Yeah. Tom, do you have any good examples of any instances where you've maybe used one or multiple of these strategies to grab some tapped equity, some trapped equity? Yeah.
1: Yep. So uh, HELOC on my personal house, have that line of credit. uh, did a cash out refinance, I it was two years ago on some properties and actually going through a couple of them right now, getting a lot of dry powder available using a lot of, yeah, <laughs> of uh weapon analogies a lot of pirate puns today a lot of pirate puns dry powder anyways and then did a 1031 a couple of years ago getting out of a specific geography or I guess a better way to say it is concentrating into a different market than that current that property was in and just like we were talking about earlier in doing these exercises you you get experience and kind of understand them that much better
2: love that
0: how about you Michael any stories you want to call out on using these strategies
2: yeah sure so i bought a property all cash a while back and then day one cash out refied 80 percent of the sale price which the lender was gracious enough to give me and then basically took all of that cash and put it into the rehabbing of that property and now that property is worth a whole lot more and so i intend to go cash out refi again now at the higher value after the rehab's all said and done everything's leased up So some important things to think about are the refinance costs that I incurred now twice. Thankfully, the lender that I work with, the refinance cost, it's the same lender I use for my HELOC. Their refinance costs are pretty minimal. So it's not a big deal as far as the costs are concerned, but it's a really great way to recycle that cash and only needing to have that initial chunk of change to buy the property all cash. Obviously, we have to make sure that the rehab costs aren't going to exceed the, the 80% refinance of the initial purchase. But that's a really, really, really great tool that I like to use. A really great strategy is buying all cash, turning around, refinancing, getting that cash out, and then go, go doing it again somewhere else. So then again, I've already spoken about the HELOC I've used. So using those two things in conjunction has been a really, really great way for me to be able to scale pretty rapidly uh, and take advantage of some killer deals that have popped up on the radar over, over the last couple of years.
1: So one more thing I'll add real quick is knowing what your loan-to-value is. Um, That's just really important. With any of these tools, you want to just make sure that you have an appropriate balance between the total mortgages or ELOC value or whatever out on the property versus the value of the property. And I think, you know, at a minimum, you know, 75%, 80% loan-to-value. More conservatively, you can get down to 60%. Well, I'd love to hear what you guys think is an appropriate loan-to-value ratio.
0: I'm probably personally pushing it to like the 75-80% because I'm in growth mode right now. I think later on, at some point, just for peace of mind, it's going to switch to, okay, how do I increase my equity on these properties? Maybe sell properties to own other properties free and clear. But right now, it's kind of just grow and then... I think it'll be switching to how do we make this more efficient?
2: Yeah. Anytime I get this question, I think of that song, push it to the limit, push it to the limit. <laughs> Cause, Cause then, I totally echoing Emil. I, I levered up as much as I could when I was in growth mode. And I've talked about this in other episodes. Now I'm looking to really streamline and become super, super lean, super efficient and reduce my loan to value and just being able to do more with less. I also think that depending on the deal itself, I mean, if the if the value isn't there, but you've got a high loan because it just the property isn't super valuable, but it cash flows really well, so your debt service coverage ratio, the amount of income that you're bringing in compared to the debt on the property is is really powerful. Then I'm more okay with that. You know, if I've got the cash flow to cover the debt, even though it might be a very high debt ratio, I'm I'm comfortable with that. And so everybody's got to reconcile that for themselves and determine what their risk appetite looks like and how comfortable they are with the values that they're working with. But no, I, I like Emil, have, have levered up as much as I possibly can. What about you, Tom?
1: Uh, yeah, gro- growth mode. I mean, debt is so cheap right now. So keeping it at uh, you know, 70%, I think, is a, a number that I keep in, uh, keep in the back of my head. Uh, and not getting getting beyond that because once you start getting above in that you risk where if there is like a downturn in the in the market getting underwater where the value of the loan is greater than the cost of the house i think it's pretty unlikely but that's how a lot of people got in trouble in that 2008 crisis is the value of the loans greatly exceeded the value of the houses and that's not a position that you want to get in so build, that's why you want to build that buffer it's kind of it's similar to the alligator Expression a property that cash flows negative. The version of that for value is a property that's underwater. So, the worst animal in the real estate investing zoo is the underwater alligator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Don't be an underwater alligator.
0: Finishing strong. Yeah. I, I have a question for you guys. Let's say you have a rental property and it does go underwater, right? As long as you have a tenant who's covering rent. Your mortgage, all that stuff. Does it matter? Like, as you know, real estate goes in cycles, goes up and down. Let's say you temporarily go underwater, but you're still cash flowing, you're still able to pay everything off. Do you guys think that matters?
1: It really depends on your situation. Like, if you are in ultra growth mode and you are not at risk of not servicing your debt payments, even if you do have a vacancy or something, I think that's fine but it's pretty situational. So if you have good other sources of income to be able to cover those shortcomings, I think that's fine. But you you need to have an an end game plan, as well as some contingencies, if things go sideways, which sometimes they do.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Emil, one that comes up a lot within the academy. And it's something that I don't pay a whole lot of attention to as far as the value, because I agree that it doesn't really matter. Nothing about that snapshot in time has changed. If you have a rental renter paying the rent, your income has not changed. It's totally independent of the value. So as long as you don't need to do anything with that property, either sell it or refinance it or try to get a HELOC on it, it has no impact on the financial picture in that snapshot of time. Of course, it'll affect your net worth and all that kind of a thing. But again, it doesn't affect the property's performance. And it's kind of like a stock. If a stock has gone down in value, we don't automatically say, okay, well now we're gonna sell it. It's an unrealized gain or loss until we do something with it, buy, sell, refinance.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the same thing. I think about a lot, I guess it's just the unknown of, will you need to sell for some unknown life event, right? And then it's, you're putting yourself at
2: risk in that way. Exactly, exactly. But that gets into the bigger discussion of having reserves and not, not ever being in that position. Because you never want to have to fire sale something.
0: Sure. Cool. I always think about that one. I was curious to get
2: your guys' thoughts on it too. What's your guys' spirit animal in the real estate investing zoo?
1: An eagle. No. Why? Uh, It's agile. Peregrine falcon. Fastest animal. Next question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you're at the zoo, so you've got your wings clipped same answer uh, I
1: I fix them I'm like a lizard
2: <laughs> <laughs> I grow new wigs that are better I stronger faster
1: stronger
2: <laughs> what's, what's your real estate too <laughs> spirit animal oh man
0: a <laughs> monkey swinging from property to prop I don't know man nice gonna... <laughs> that's a good one
2: eating bananas the whole time
0: right exactly
2: yourself Michael I'm a duck, man. I said it before. I'll say it again. I'm constantly floating, looking calm, cool, and collected on the surface. Underwater, I'm paddling hard as can be.
0: Well, thank you, as always, everybody, for tuning into this episode. Make sure you go and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you get new episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Happy investing.
2: Happy investing.
0: Happy investing.